0: Hello everyone, I'm Tara Boyce, and thank you for joining me again for episode 2 of Addicted to Recovery, the interactive memoir, a podcast that's also an audiobook, which is also a dialogue about recovery from addictions and mental illness, and also just about trying to get better at being human. If it is your first time joining me, I would suggest referring back to the first episode just so you know how this whole audiobook slash dialogue thing plays out. I really appreciate the feedback from the listeners. The one thing that seemed to resonate with a lot of people was the description of the blackouts, which is great. I mean, not great that everyone was having blackouts, but really great that something that is usually so isolating was something that people could relate to. Some feedback that I got from people who actually know me very well personally was that I sounded, well almost unnatural or perhaps too polished or performative. Uh, I am a performer, so that's not necessarily unnatural for me, but I will admit that I recorded and re-recorded and re-scripted and edited the crap out of the first episode. I mean, I was going back and making sure there were no too breathy-sounding breaths because, goodness gracious, God forbid that I breathe, um... In a sense, I am used to doing that for voice acting auditions, but I was also really neurotic about putting myself out there and I wanted to make a good impression. But I don't want to err so much on the side of being fussy that I lose the sense of being a real person here. I am going to try, but it's a challenge for me. So, for example, right now there's a bird squawking downstairs and there's some renovation sounds going on outside... So a part of me is like, no, 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 I can't do this now. I have to wait until the nighttime when it is dark and the conditions are perfect. Uh, Which kind of brings me to something that I wanted to talk about in relation to the feedback, which is my struggle with perfectionism. Right? Um, It seems a little counterintuitive. Like, you were running a bulldozer through your life and you say that you're a perfectionist? I think you might have missed the mark a little there but it's actually something that's quite common to a lot of people I know in recovery. At this point, I recognize that it's a limiting and self-defeating belief structure, but it still has its claws in me, and I know it's stealing my quality of life, but it's so deeply ingrained I feel like I'm in a constant tug-of-war with it. Honestly, I'd love to hear any suggestions from you as to how to win that particular battle. Maybe I should call this my uh, (laughs) interactive therapy as opposed to an interactive memoir. So, for as long as I can remember, I've had this belief that I am not fit to run my own life. That maybe one day I'd wake up and someone more suitable to the task would have taken over. But every day I'd wake up, as me, thinking, Who the hell trusted this person with a whole life? That's a lot of responsibility and I just wasn't here for it. I've always been creative, and I have volumes of prose, poetry, music, drawings, unfinished projects I've started and never finished and generally have never even shown to anybody because it wasn't ready yet. It's not perfect yet. I didn't just have imposter syndrome in regards to various roles I played in terms of being, I don't know, a student, a girlfriend, a performer, what have you. I had imposter syndrome in terms of being a human. I just really felt that I wasn't up to the task. So, for a while, when I was a lot younger, alcohol worked in the sense that it removed the gatekeeper between me and making any decisions at all, which doesn't mean they were always good decisions, but when I was young, it broke me out of the paralysis of analysis. It let me talk to that guy at that party, or read that poem at the open mic, or open up to that girl I really wanted to be friends with, or audition to sing with that band, but eventually it became so that I couldn't make even the most trivial of decisions without alcohol, and eventually alcohol was making all my decisions for me, and all my decisions necessarily had to include alcohol. Eventually, I also forgot how to do the things I used to do without alcohol, without alcohol, like writing, going to an audition, going to school, going to work, being with other people, being by myself, well, anything, really. When I was in and out of institutions trying to get sober, I think my perfectionism played a huge role in my lack of success there because I wanted to be the perfect sobriety student, I knew all the right things to say, I learned the language of recovery, I had done all the requisite research on addiction, and I had loads of theoretical self-awareness, but ultimately it just kind of led to me knowing how to fill out worksheets and rehab impressively, and I never really knew how to translate that knowledge into action but I was convinced that if I just did the next rehab perfectly, I'd get an A+, I'd get to be the valedictorian of sobriety, I'd graduate with honors and be guaranteed success. Uh, I get into this in much greater detail in the book, but... Spoiler alert. Turns out it doesn't really work that way. My inability to admit or even acknowledge to myself how completely lost and insecure and scared I felt kept me from reaching out or engaging honestly with my own recovery. I was fine. I knew all the answers. I was the star student. It was very important to me that everyone thought I was smart and capable, but it somehow escaped me that how I actually felt might be a bit more important. I still have many days where I feel like, hmm, the right version of me didn't show up today. This person has no idea what she's doing, She doesn't deserve to run, let alone enjoy life. Meanwhile, life is still happening. I just believed it hadn't really started yet because I wasn't ready yet. Unfortunately, life has a kind of ready or not, here I come quality, and I still spend a lot of time on the proverbial stage thinking it's still the dress rehearsal. This podcast is a big step for me in terms of putting something out there and letting go of the outcome but I still know I have a ways to go in trusting myself. But really, I wasn't someone to be trusted with my own life for a while, so maybe it's almost natural I'd want to be a bit of a strict parent to my own decisions. It's kind of the paradox of self-improvement, in that I do want to be constantly growing and evolving, but that can become a mechanism to stay in a kind of stasis, feeling perpetually (laughs) half-baked, no pun intended, Okay, maybe it was intended, and maybe I should just own it. Hmm, that was meta. Metaphorically, it's very much like the way I ruin video games for myself. I play JRPGs, and will spend hours and hours grinding the low-level monsters, making sure I get enough money to go back to the town and buy all the new equipment— and if there is some hack to upgrade that equipment, I will do that as well. I will customize all the characters into killing machines, and by the time I get to the next level or the next dungeon, it is no fun at all. I have broken the game, the boss barely lays a scratch on me, and I am angry that I spoiled my own fun. Then, come to the next village, I do it again. This is kind of how I've treated my life, except... I usually don't even make it to the dungeon. I just stay in the village, farming experience with the same low-level monsters I know I can defeat, buying ridiculous amounts of potions and accessories and making all the recipes until I just kind of lose interest in the game. No wonder. So I'm still very much a work in progress in that respect. I mean, I've put together a couple of years, but in relation to the 20 years I was out there doing things the wrong way, I'm, I'm still a baby. So, on to chapter 2, which goes back to my childhood. But I did want to address the slight absurdity of a memoir, given how I just spent the last chapter talking about how many blackouts I've had. Memory is already unreliable, even for those whose experience has not been deranged by mental illness and substances. My history, in particular, has also been retold and rewritten, if you will through many different therapeutic lenses every time I went to treatment. Sometimes it was the story of me as the victim, sometimes it was the story of me as the villain, and neither one and both are true. From as early as I could speak, I was also prone to lying quite a bit, of misrepresenting truth as I saw it, and in some cases I may only be able to remember the stories I told myself and others. So, what this represents is a patchwork of parts that I think will be useful to the bigger picture. My objective really isn't accuracy, but it will be honest insofar as a shifting perspective can be. For the sake of fairness to others, most of the retrospective will be about my own internal experiences of the world, as I'm not really here to cast other people as characters in my melodrama. I'm going to avoid doing that to the best of my ability. Chapter 2. The Thoughts it was sudden, a lurch in my stomach, a full-bodied tremor felt above and beneath the skin simultaneously, a sensation of shrinking, becoming painfully, defenselessly small. I was five years old, and I realized that I was going to die. The world was no longer safe, because I understood that it would, inevitably, kill me. How I imagined that might manifest was influenced heavily by the movies I watched. In the never-ending story, there were giant sphinxes that could shoot lasers through their eyes that would incinerate a person on contact, if that person had fear in their heart. I had much fear in my heart, so those sphinxes would surely find me. Picturing them stalking our residential suburb at night, seeking out the spineless and feeble-spirited children... I checked what position my sister was sleeping in in our bunk beds. If I could make sure I was sleeping in the exact same position, the sphinxes would not target me, as they would have to go through her and it was not their way to murder unscrupulously. My older sister Angie was not such a basket case. They didn't want her. She was good. Return to Oz had a deadly desert, which would turn any living creature that contacted it into sand. It didn't have moral parameters like the Sphinx's. I began to eye suspicious specks of dust on the floor of my room, avoiding them, believing they might be grains of sand from said deadly desert, transported there craftily by some malicious minion bent on my destruction. If my grilled cheese was grilled with some peculiarity, it didn't have to be the Virgin Mary, but some unusual pattern in the toasted bread, I believed the grilled cheese had been tampered with, poisoned, I would refuse to eat. This didn't come from any creepy kitty movie, this was just garden-variety paranoia, like the toilet gremlins who had an appetite for one's private parts, which led me to hold my bladder until I could barely walk. The most terrifying was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, in which the maniacal Judge Doom had invented a substance called the dip, which was lethal to cartoons. I watched in abject horror as this sinister man picked up an animated shoe with his leather-gloved hand and lowered it into the dip, murdering it just for being squeaky and silly as cartoon shoes are wont to be. This catapulted me into despair as though I couldn't articulate it at the time. Judge Doom being able to kill even things that were in theory unkillable, like cartoons, meant all bets were off. Children were on the menu now as candidates for an untimely demise. Death was imminent, I saw it everywhere. And I was too young to have the words, or the requisite amount of black eyeliner and other gothic trappings to express my discontent about this. Now the movies weren't the problem. I'm sure my brain would have found some other source to credit my anxieties for a mind that was terribly sensitive and impressionable at once. These episodes of early-onset existential dread, which we coined, The Thoughts, coincided with my mother's pregnancy and the birth of my little brother Logan, neither event pleasing me too much. One anxiety attack left me unable to uncross my eyes, bringing me to my first-ever mental health care provider, my career as a professional patient in its prelude. It was suggested my irrational fears and acting out might have something to do with said brother's arrival. I vehemently denied this for thirty years, claiming that I barely even remember Logan's birth, I just remembered the thoughts and their terrible mastery over me. This is true, but I think it is also true that, on a deeper level, I processed my brother's arrival and the accompanying loss of certainty about my role in the family as a threat to my survival that coupled with bizarrely morbid reflections for a young child, I felt my place as the family's focal point fading, and if I wasn't the center of attention then, surely I must be dying. It is possible my ego might have already been equally overblown and fragile. Just as abruptly I reverted back to being a well-adjusted kid, macabre imaginings of all the ways my undoing would manifest were relegated to the background. Though as I started to be given some basic responsibility, it was clear I was not having it. I was asked to clean my room. I looked at collections of my things strewn about and panicked. So much clutter and so little capacity in my brain to categorize and create order. My mind turned to jelly, but I knew I would be at risk of losing privileges if I didn't do the task. Or at least appear to have done the task. Aha! I stuffed things haphazardly into plastic bags and hid them in the crawl space. There! My room is spick and span! Everything seems, on the surface, to be in its right place. Only I knew of the stashed belongings that spoke to my utter defeat at the hands of managing my own belongings. I didn't have the organizational capacity to keep up with my mess-making capacity— This is an apt metaphor for how I would handle emotions and take liberties with honesty, believing life was really about how I could manage others' perceptions insofar as I could avoid consequences. If I could make someone else believe it's true, that's good enough for jazz, from the state of my room to the state of my sobriety. If only I had known how severe the consequences of this mental mismanagement would be— I might have learned how to clean my room, or more consequently, my conscience. Emotions felt threatening, and I wanted to just cram them all into plastic bags and hide them in a proverbial crawlspace. Alcohol would eventually give me the illusion of being able to achieve this. I'm still not very good at keeping my room clean. I have the emotional recall of loneliness, of being also actually alone a great deal, but I'm aware this was not actually the case. Rather, the moments in which I felt lonely are amplified in my mind, for either their intensity, or they have served the greater narrative of my outsider identity. Were I to trust my own memory, I would cast myself in the tragic and absurd circumstances of most of Rawl Dahl's heroes, a child surrounded by villainous or disinterested adults who escapes into solitude through fantasy and reading." I did indulge these escapisms, but what exactly I was escaping from remains nebulous. My parents were anything but disinterested or villainous. My mother owned a boutique for used children's clothes and toys, cleverly called Baby Boom, catering to the boomers' children. She started this business mainly to have access to all the clothes and toys me and my sister could want that she wouldn't have been able to afford otherwise. Even though there were financial struggles in my household, my mom's resourcefulness and choice of business made it so that I had no inkling of these woes. Why would I? My toy collection was the envy of the neighborhood. Board games, Lego, My Little Pony, stuffed animals, Fisher-Prize Barbies, we had them all and lots of them. Neither myself or my sister, my primary playmate, were all that interested in the Barbies. They would generally only leave their container when another neighborhood kid came over, and we'd observe, bemused, at how other kids found the process of dressing and undressing this disproportionate doll in various 80s-inspired fashions enthralling. We were less inclined to want to play with those kids again. We preferred the My Little Ponies, who had a magic and whimsy in them— Their personalities and powers could be informed by the symbols on their rears, or the presence or absence of wings, or a horn to indicate status. We'd create complex social hierarchies and sprawling chronicles that would go on for what seemed like months. We rarely started over completely with a new game, but continue a grander story, as the ponies' relationships and abilities deepened. In retrospect, it surprises me that my sister had much interest in playing with me as much as she did. I was three years her junior, but we balanced each other out well. The differences in our personalities were already clear, Angie's being more pragmatic and structured, mine being more impulsive and unrestrained. I'd go out on a wild tangent, and she'd pull me back in. My mom enjoyed this dynamic particularly when playing past the story in the evening, my sister would keep it grounded, whereas I would introduce the unexpected. Storytime was sacred in our house. We never went to bed without one, whether we were making it up or being read to by my mom, who did not condescend to us by reading inane Kitty Fluff. Sure, we enjoyed the lyrical and zany works of Dr. Seuss, but were also exposed to Charles Dickens and pre-Disney versions of rather grim fairy tales." My sister was already a precocious reader, and my mom would not punish her by reading to my age-appropriate range. Sure, there was a lot of things that went over my head, but whenever there was a word or an idea I didn't understand, I just asked, and it would be explained. I was fully literate before I started elementary school, which was great, except that it also led to me getting bored very easily. My parents enrolled me in a lot of activities—swimming lessons, ballet, soccer, choir, and theater. I lost interest in the athletic pursuits rather quickly, as it was clear that I was not very good at them, and certainly not the best, and the gap between myself and the one who was the best was so vast I saw little point in participating. The joy of being a team player was lost on me. Even in theater, which I loved, I was only happy when I was the star or had considerably more stage time than the other kids, which was the case for my first childhood productions. In subsequent ones, when I was not as showcased, I became petulant, resentful of others with better roles, and spent more time scowling at them, mentally condemning their acting abilities, than actually working on my own independently i was an avid reader and liked to write and draw but when i wasn't the star of one of our productions i would passive-aggressively sulk huddled up in a corner with a book it was one of two extremes let me be the center of attention or leave me alone this was all well and good in early elementary i breezed through school and no one seemed to mind if i preferred to do my own thing in class so long as i finished my assignments and wasn't overly disruptive I loved performing and, well, showing off, so participated eagerly in all the things in which my skills could be showcased, and I insisted those skills were showcased. There was a talent show for the older grades, grades 4, 5, and 6, when I was in grade 1. I insisted that I must be included in this talent show because I was, quote-unquote, very, very talented. When asked how this was the case, I listed my skills, such as drawing and baking, which were met with amusement, but then demonstrated I could sing by belting out Tomorrow from Annie in front of the teacher in charge of the show and my whole class. My friend Heather wanted to be included, and, in the afterglow of wowing my audience, I graciously granted her the role of my dog, Sandy. She was delighted. Her mother... Less so, and she and my mom approached us with the idea that maybe we could sing the song as a duet. I just scoffed at them. Dogs don't sing. I opened the show. My insistence on being in the spotlight extended to my community theater troupe, of which I was one of the youngest members. We were putting on Snoopy, the musical, and after this announcement, I told my parents matter-of-factly that I was going to be Snoopy— They braced me for the likelihood that this would not be the case, as they would privilege experience or perhaps reward someone who had seniority within the group. These politics made no sense to me, as I explained to them, but I'm the best. It seemed the director agreed. Well, so much for my assertion that dogs don't sing. This was not strictly delusional arrogance or entitlement, but a faith in my own abilities and dedication to actually being the best. When I got the role of Snoopy, I did little else with my spare time except go over the lines and lyrics, waiting until my mom put me to bed, then putting the nightlight back on to pore over trickier passages. There's nothing wrong with confidence, but mine was fragile and contingent upon the constant reinforcement of people around me. Rejection, thus far, hadn't been something I'd had to grapple with, but as it turned out, something I was ill-equipped to handle gracefully, without it putting my whole sense of self-worth into question. Once again, I must be extraordinary, or I must be garbage. This might have been exacerbated by the belief that things like skill and talent were innate. People commonly gushed over how talented I was, but never said anything like, you must have worked really hard to do that thing. So, if talent was something that one did or did not possess, it stood to reason that if someone didn't recognize my ability, they may have actually just discovered that I did not have them. I did not have it. The idea of subjectivity, nuance, or that talent could be developed over time did not occur to me. I was either a star or a complete fraud." When I was in my third or fourth rehab, I read a study that explained some of my somewhat baffling challenges with confidence given I was so strongly encouraged. This study, conducted by Mueller and Dweck in 2002, so I can't fault my parents or educators for not having this reference in, what, 1992, had fifth-grade children solve moderately difficult problems. They were subsequently praised for either their intelligence or their effort. Next, they were given far more difficult problems, in which they were more likely to face challenges. When they were asked to talk about those challenges, those praised for being smart attributed them to basically being too stupid and were more defeated, as if intelligence is fixed, what's the point of even trying? Those praised for their effort were more likely to improve." The study also found children who were consistently praised for innate ability were more likely to avoid challenges in general where they believed they could fail, were more likely to give up after a failure, and were more likely to perform poorly after a failure, their confidence fractured. They would be more inclined to believe their failures were evidence of their also apparently innate stupidity rather than a lack of preparation, effort, focus, or just cruddy luck. I was often praised for my talent or intelligence by well-meaning and supportive people. However, any time I underperformed in any domain I was told to have talent in, I was shattered. I believed it was evidence that I wasn't actually any good. It had been discovered. My prior accomplishments must have been the flukes. And eventually, any time I did do well, I started to feel like an imposter, aware of my capacity to fail. It was high-order black-and-white thinking. Also, if intelligence and talent were innate characteristics that should be rewarded by the universe, then what did my participation have to do with it? So not only would I avoid challenges and possible rejection, I was also given to complacency, laziness, and as I got older, rather nauseating levels of nihilism. I wish that had been the only consequence. So that was chapter two. It's kind of funny. It didn't even occur to me when I recorded the beginning of this episode how much the chapter itself ties into perfectionism and its origins. So I really hope some of the feelings resonate with you, even if the autobiographical details don't. But I want to hear from you. If you're thinking, Tara, I don't give a hoot about your childhood. Get back to the part where you're running a bulldozer through your life. I'll listen. You can reach me at interactivememoir at gmail.com the Twitter page, which is at T.O. Memoir, or the Facebook group, which is the name of this podcast. And also, if you want to support me being able to keep doing this with the same level of neuroticism, well, no, actually, I did do a little better on this one. I also set up a page at buymeacoffee.com recovery. And all that info is in the show notes. So at the beginning of the podcast, I may have given the impression that I'm plagued by paralyzing perfectionism all the time, but like with anything else, it's more or less of a problem depending on how much energy I devote to either feeding it or fighting it. Because of releasing the first episode, the critical voices in my head were a little louder than usual last week, and I will take my own inventory in that I did not employ some of the countermeasures I do have at my disposal. Given that I am in recovery from addiction, one strategy I have is to remind myself it would be pretty difficult for me to screw things up any more than I've already messed things up in the past when I was drunk all the time, and yet, the funny thing is, I never did actually die of embarrassment. A person doesn't have to be an addict to remember a time where they might have screwed things up and not only didn't die from it, but maybe even learned something, so even I were to quote-unquote fail, well... So what? It's probably not going to kill me. And, as cheesy as it might sound, the greatest remedy I have against perfectionism and negative self-talk is love— Yeah, I know, that sounds really cheesy, and I'm not talking about self-love. That can be, tricky. Rather, I imagine the people in my life that I love the most, and as it turns out, all the people I love the most are people, and thus imperfect. I don't necessarily love them in spite of their imperfections, but really, in many cases because of them. If they suddenly all morphed into Mary Poppins, I think that might be, well, not only intimidating, but really creepy. Um, If I'm having a particularly abusive dialogue with myself, I ask myself also, would you talk to your best friend like that? Would you tell her that she isn't good enough to run her own life? Would you even talk to someone you didn't like that harshly? And the answer is almost always no. Uh, Finally, and I really feel like I dropped the ball on not mentioning this in the last episode, if you're struggling with addiction or mental health currently... I don't know you and your exact circumstances, and I am not a mental health professional, but I do know that there is so much support available online. If COVID did have one silver lining, it's that now pretty much every support resource you can think of now has an online incarnation. Without even leaving the couch, you can get to a 12-step meeting for addictions and process addictions, that is addictions that have more to do with behaviors, relationships, food, gambling... There is an amazingly strong recovery community you can find through 12-step. There's also Smart Recovery, which are groups that are more tools-based, has a lot to do with cognitive behavioral therapy, and there are tons of meetings for a whole bunch of different issues that you can find online as well. There is also Refuge Recovery, which is recovery based in the principles of Buddhism, which has brought a lot of depth into my life in the last year. These programs might vary a little in their philosophies, but what they all have in common is that it's people who want to help each other. And these days, too, if you're shy, you can just pop into a meeting with your camera off and test the waters. You don't have to go through it alone. I'll leave some links in the show notes. And if anyone here listening knows of some additional resources I might not be aware of, please let me know. And until next week, you have so much more to offer the world than you even know.